0: Welcome to Buy the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Doyen. Colts is the wine director for McGuire Mormon Lambert Hospitality Group, which runs some of Austin's best restaurants and hotels. Chances are you've had a glass of wine at one of their joints, maybe a bottle of uh, Domain Abatucci Vermentino with your oysters at Clark's or Perlas, maybe you've had some sparkling rosé at June's All Day. They also run Jeffries and a whole lot of other joints. Recently, though, the company made a move to New Orleans with Hotel St. Vincent. Uh, Patrick and I spoke while he was in Sonoma on a wine trip. And in this episode, Patrick gets into talking about splitting his time between New Orleans and Austin and his recent experience building an Italian-focused wine list for Sammy's. We also get into his relationship to St. Louis, the city where he started his wine career. Quick caveat, we recorded this talk before Hurricane Ida hit New Orleans. After the storm, the hotel converted into a temporary hospital and officially reopened on September 19th. Again, I'm sorry for taking us back in time. Uh, but here's Patrick circa mid-August. Shit dog, you just got into California, right? Yeah,
1: flew in. Uh, I guess I landed. I don't know what time it is there. What time is it? I'm in Boston
0: and it is 648. Yeah, it's uh, 348. You got your whole day ahead of you. Yeah, Get my whole day ahead of me. Yeah, we're
1: gonna yeah, it's pretty light today. We're just gonna have uh, a cool dinner. And then- a cool
0: dinner. What, is, what does that mean?
1: Uh, it's catered. Uh, some high-end uh, Sonoma chef is uh, is going to be doing something for us at Stone Street. So we'll see what happens.
0: That'll be fun. And the wine is kind of a free-for-all, or is it BYOB, and everyone's got to uh, kind it's the- flex on one another? What's the vibe?
1: <laughs> it's Sonoma growers, so it's going to be a bunch of
0: Pinot and Chard. And pinot and Chardonnay <laughs> for days, baby. <laughs> Maybe someone will bring, like, uh, some Zinfandel, perhaps. Oh. Kizasp. Or some, Sonoma Ooh, sherry? Does that exist? Is there a producer you know that's making <laughs> Solera style shit in Sonoma? Four <laughs> S's, you're set. You, I think you have a private label. Hey, let's make it happen. I'll get Valdespino on the line. We'll hit him up. Get that, get that shit going. That would be fun. You are there for? It's a food and wine event. Yeah. Like it's sponsored by.
1: It's sponsored by the Sonoma Growers Association, and they're. It's a big pitch and a big move to like start doing this um yearly events so they have writers in from like people magazine and food and wine and things like that from all the uh, all around the country and so they just this is like a dry run with psalms to like get a lot of the publicity out there and then next year they're gonna open it up um, i think to the public
0: and it's it's based on like the sonoma valley like Appalachian or people that feed into a separate group of growers. Like it's a growers it's a growers association
1: that's not, not actually a part of the Sonoma Valley AVA. It's just Sonoma growers, so it spans all of the AVAs. It's just a matter of who's a part of that association. Uh, but it's like twenty five growers.
0: Okay, cool. Is it is it just mostly a lot of big names that that are able to kind of like help fund it, or are there some cool kind of like? Smaller guys it's, that are able to, to do it. It's driven by bigger guys
1: like Verte and Stone Street,
0: obviously part of the Jackson family. Uh, David. Shout out Jackson family, sponsor the pod. You <laughs> know, you sponsor Guild Song podcasts. Come on through for the little guys, you know? Support small business. Let's do it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it should be a good event. I, I obviously, both of us don't drink a ton of wines from Sonoma all the time. <laughs> So it's always nice to like give it its fair shake and like be fully
0: immersed. So, so shake that baby, give it a fair shake. Let's make it happen. I mean, what Sonoma Valley producers do you really fuck with? Like, are there any that were like aha moments for you that you were super stoked on early in your wine career when you were at like Four Seasons or Louis Wine Bar or some shit like that?
1: I'd say that there were a few big names that um, popped out to me early
0: on in my wine train. The same way that they would with others. What do you currently have on your list from Sonoma? And I realize that you work with a lot of different lists. So take that wherever you want to go. Uh, I, I
1: always take it back to Litteri. I think that whenever I think of California Pinot Noir, mostly it's like the identifier for me to know like what true Pinot grown and produced in an unadulterated way. And I think that that's kind of the standard bearer for me. Uh, throughout my career, it's tougher for me to tell the difference between all those wines, but Literize always stood out to me, and then um, I'd say Ramey has a big place in my heart too. Um, I had a lot of interactions with Dave early in my career, and one of them was being out in Sonoma and him like tasting people on uh, wines that were 15 years old uh, and one was aged under DM who was, he was one of the first people experimenting with it in the early 2000s. And one of them was under traditional quirk and he, he's so giving them this time and had multiple run-ins with him after that. And uh, so, yeah, I I'd say that they're up there, but I could talk, I could continue naming producers and ha- how they have a different influence. But I do think that to me, I, I probably have closer, um connections with sonoma growers
0: than i do in napa well another big sonoma producer that you fuck with hard is a uh, scribe right i mean they opened up the new place that you're working at right or one of the places that you've helped open shout out st vincent in new orleans they came through and did a uh a fun event with y'all right
1: totally yeah uh so they helped open the hotel with us when we had st vincent open the st vincent hotel
0: a texan or- originally right isn't she uh Originally from Dallas or the Dallas area,
1: I don't know that, but I she is really close friends with one of our partners uh, on the Litterhead, uh, Liz Lambert, and so she did that opening concert, and it was like it was the coolest like atmosphere for opening a hotel I've ever been a part of, and uh, Scribe was a part of that. Scribe has been closer and closer with us as a company uh, in the last two or three years, ever since we did our first Scribe event at June's uh, in Austin. And since then it's like, we can't do enough business with each other. So,
0: cause I know that Liz Lambert is also super close with them through El Cosmico cause they always do the Picos festival together.
1: Yeah. I think, so I think Liz is one of the reasons why Larry became so interested with that kind of relationship and he grew to like love them and hang out with them. So whenever he's out in California too, the head of our restaurant group, uh, he's always hanging with them. So yeah, it's a, it's a good relationship and, the cool thing about Scribe is that they're coming out with a bunch of new wines that they're kind of pushing the limit on. They have the Wonderland Project, um, and it's just a, uh, a tiny production that they're making, but uh, they're fun, energetic wines in the spirit that Scribe as a label
0: was seven, eight years ago. I love all of the wines under the Wonderland Project. They just released their first Rosé, right? Rosé, and then have you had the, the light uh, red wine? No, I don't think I have. No, I think it's. Is it all Pinot or is it like a goofy little coferment?
1: It's a coferment, um, and then they are uh, doing a, an event with them around Halloween in New Orleans, and they're releasing their first traditional method
0: uh, sparkling wine. Oh shit! Uh, yeah, so that will be uh, that'll be pretty cool. They're doing some. So you're working directly with Matt Ahern on that, or yeah, mm-hmm. Matteo. Cool. Yeah. Great dude. Honestly, one of the like nicest dudes in the industry. Like so chill. I love him. When he
1: was in New Orleans, we conquered bourbon street we didn't we didn't turn in until like five in the morning
0: yeah he well the other thing is that um mateo matt is like incredibly good at like holding his liquor so like you'll be with him and he is cool as a cucumber and you, you you're like very fucked up and you're like trying to hold it together and this guy's just like fucking coasting he's good yeah he's he's a pro Yeah, I wouldn't want to go shot for shot with him on Bourbon Street. That sounds like a recipe for trouble, sir. (laughs) You can check out his Instagram picture and we like, or his account and we're like
1: walking along Bourbon Street and it's just starting to devolve.
0: Yeah. Matt's the best. He's a rock star for sure. I saw him when I was in LA in April. Tell me about opening the St. Vincent Hotel because most places like you get a gradual run up. Maybe you get a little bit of runway where you can kind of work out some kinks, but you guys did a full on opening party that included a concert with fucking St. Vincent. I mean, this is like, you're not only trying to open a restaurant, but you're also planning a huge wine event and a concert all in one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how much of that fell on you?
1: Well, to add to it, it's like trying to open things still in the, in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, We opened a restaurant last year in Austin, a sushi restaurant neighborhood sushi, two months after Abbott opened everything up, which was intense enough. We opened a couple of restaurants in uh, earlier this year in Austin as well. So it was like not 45 days later, we were in new Orleans trying to get this uh, project open. And you can think of all the things that are happening along global supply chains that could possibly affect us. It, it affected us
0: for listeners at home that aren't as familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Two weeks out, we didn't have half the beds for the hotel because they were still in the water. Holy shit. And so we had to like, we had to order them from another source and it was like stuff that like you would never do for opening um, what was thought to be one of the exciting hotel openings in New Orleans and uh, in the South this year. And there's a great write up a couple of big ones introducing Liz Lambert as part of our, group even though she's always been a part of the group it just uh, we made the announcement and the transition transition from mcguire mormon to mcguire mormon lambert it was this whole blowout so there was a ton of pressure opening up um but in terms of the challenges there it's like everyone's seeing staffing challenges but to try to open with the most skeleton crew you possibly can and to then host 500 people over the course of uh three days it was like 20 hour days every day and it was uh Pretty insane. And we got through it though.
0: What kind of kept you sane through all that? That's a good question.
1: Uh,
0: I don't know that I w- was totally sane, but. Um, you crushed up some Adderall in your purple drink at Lafitte's. I mean, what, what's the move? Like, What's, uh, what's happening? Uh, just eye on the
1: ball. I guess you just have to continue to know like what the next hour holds or what the next couple hours and, Our group is really good about letting people handle their own departments and uh, take care of things that they need to take care of. So from a standpoint of like trying to create whatever list we can, trying to know know that people were going to come in there and make a a judgment that weekend as to like what kind of game we're going to try and play from a wine perspective. So trying to get all the storage and everything put away, like from the time that we purchased all the wine to the time the concert happened, it was like, all, all beverage totally uh, was like a week uh, and it seems like a long time, but to try and put all of it together and to make sure that the team uh, is ready and prepared. Uh, and we we opened that restaurant basically without any training because we just had to open and we had to get reps in and it's been great, but we still like the staffing situation is unbelievable. Like in Austin, we we were not fully staffed, but we can run the restaurants in a, in a really efficient way in New Orleans. It's like, it's unbelievable. There's so many tried and true restaurants that have people there that will never leave.
0: Just like, because it's such a consistent gig for them. Like why leave commander's palace when you can just like, like why go to a place that's untested, a place that's just opening. Totally.
1: I mean, a lot of people wanted a new opportunity, but I think the ranks just thinned out considerably in a city like New Orleans. So like, um, Texas was open since last May and really New Orleans was closed for the most part for all intents and purposes until like the beginning of April. So it, there was, the, it's needing some time to like start back up. Um, they just recently put in place from a city perspective, a mask inv- uh, or a vaccine mandate. So that is actually making our lives a lot easier because now we can ask our employees to get vaccinated as well as everyone that comes through the doors. It's definitely um, polarizing, but uh, that's a way that
0: we can figure. Have you had to navigate any of those conversations where an employee or a guest like refused to show their vaccine card? Is that how you're kind of going about it?
1: Yeah, we were just in New Orleans together, obviously. And uh, the the mandate went into effect after we left. So I have not yet had to have that conversation, but so far based on all the communications I'm having with that team, it's like, yeah, it's back to that conversation about masks uh, right when we first got going. And uh, I think there will be a lot of people that just tune us out indefinitely, but people that want to go and
0: realize that the whole city has to do it. Um, also, it's a city that's so dependent on tourism, I would imagine. And they're about to start their tourism season, right? Mm-hmm. I imagine in New Orleans, it begins you know, in the fall when college football games begin NFL games begin and then continues through Halloween, the cooler weather, and then into Mardi Gras season, right? Is that kind of the time frame that we're talking about for New Orleans season, quote unquote?
1: And they were trying to be safe. And so they pushed all the major events they would normally have in the spring to the fall. So October was probably gonna be the most loaded month in New Orleans recent New Orleans history. And um before the vaccine mandate they canceled jazz fest and there were a couple other cancellations of major events that followed and i think that this is just in response to like they have to do something dramatic the main reason i think and i'm speculating here shell sponsors um jazz fest and shell didn't want to be to have their name put on a super spreader event and so uh
0: I'd rather have their name on an oil spill or something like that, (laughs) but they don't want it on, on jazz fest shell sponsor the pod and (laughs) we'll we'll edit that out and post. Yeah. Um, But, but no, you're right. I mean, it's a city that is known for very large social gatherings, whether it's jazz fest or like Mardi Gras, these big events, saints games that bring people together. It's, and it's a city where a lot of the like bar scene is built around live music and singing and, and, and dancing and vibing in the street. I can't think of a city that's more like COVID friendly or like anti-social distancing than a city like New Orleans from a cultural standpoint.
1: Yeah. I mean, the only other city that comes to mind is Vegas. Uh, And yeah, you're right. That I think uh, I I applaud that, their political leadership to do something that it was brave to have to put a mandate, like the first I I'm seeing really outside of, New York City, I think, has one. San Francisco has one, but like to be in the Midwest-ish South and to make that call, like, it's
0: uh, kind of a big yeah. Move. And a sea of red—that's a challenging move. Totally. Had you ever opened a hotel before? Like, had that ever been part of your like work experience?
1: Yeah. So we, yeah, I mean, definitely uh, a challenging opening was the Austin proper. So that was our first hotel coordination. We don't own the the hotel. Um, and so this was a new experience owning everything. Um, and so it actually worked out so much better than that first opening. Cause the first opening you're trying to partner with other owners. And if things aren't seen in the same light, then it, there's a huge, um, like it's a, a, it creates a huge limbo where like no decisions get made because no one has the direct authority to just make it happen. Uh, we're yeah. in this hotel, like when we need something or something needed to change, we just changed it, uh, we went from a room side or a food and beverage side, but opening the Austin proper and our group, that was, that was a great test run for us to know what we were going to be up against. Uh, it's a much smaller project than the proper. So yeah, uh, it was good. To- How many
0: rooms for reference is, uh, St. Vincent, uh, 75 rooms and
1: proper is about two and a half times bigger than that. Wow. With residences on top. So yeah, a lot of sticky stuff uh, for sure. But the difference is you have a home base in Austin versus a first opening in
0: New Orleans. So on a, on a company level, but also on a personal level for you too, right? Because yep. like you're the wine director for MMLH mm-hmm. and you're based in Austin, but you suddenly would have to come out and just like, I don't know, would you just rent an Airbnb? Was that the vibe? You would just work there? Uh, in New Orleans
1: what happened because we were going at first we were staying um, in a local hotel when it was pre-opening and then when the concert went on we were actually at an Airbnb close to the hotel so that we can be kind of all hands on deck because all the available rooms that we could give were to guests and VIPs and then uh, now every time I go in I'm, I'm staying at the hotel so yeah it was it's definitely a change to Like, I've been there probably six or seven weeks in the last three or four months. And uh, the biggest challenge outside of, like, changing up where you're putting your head down at the end of the night um, and potentially, like, having to go 15 minutes after a 20-hour day um, is
0: going back and forth between the markets and realizing that, like, all the books are different. Yeah, you're not working with the same distributors and import portfolio might be split across a couple of different... Yeah,
1: so... uh I mean, as my, as many notes as I can take, as as familiar as I can be, but it's almost like it takes like a day for my mind to reset and to realize where everything's coming from again, uh, and that's that that's a challenge. And um, I didn't, we didn't create a list entirely too big right away, so we were able to get to know the distributors, be able to have the connections, and then kind of build up the buying and build up the list. And yeah, it's not an overly crazy list. It's 200 SKUs, but when we opened, it was like 50 or 60,
0: um, that first trial run. And so that's a really tough list to build. I mean, building a big list is easy. You can kind of put a lot of different things in a lot of different slots, but here you kind of had to consolidate and figure out what was really important and what would resonate in a hotel capacity as opposed to a restaurant capacity, as well as for the new Orleans clientele, right? A lot of the feedback I get
1: too from distributors and suppliers is that no one's really doing Italian wine outside of the big list that just have their Italian sections. No one's promoting Italian wine the way that like, that's the number one thing we want guests thinking about. So it actually fills a void in the market, but in terms of availability of products I'm used to having access to in Texas, uh, it just wasn't there in New Orleans. So it it was, it was quite a bit harder to try and figure out like how the producers we are working with, how do we represent this the right way and make it as cool as possible without having any pre-buying done uh, and that can dramatically change uh the strategy of an opening list. If you're able to buy for the first six months uh, prior to opening, then you can build up a reserve. But if you're just buying what's available, it's uh presents another challenge. A la minute.
0: Yeah. So like in terms of like Italian portfolios that that you fuck with, like uh on an importer level, I guess. Is it Kermit? Is it Dalla Is it some of the smaller guys like Selexio Natural? What's kind of the vibe there?
1: Uh, It's a good cross between like, we're one of the biggest Rosenthal supporters in the country as a restaurant group. Uh, Iconic producers sometimes uh, can be a little bit more useful on a bigger list because some of those wines take a little bit, more coaxing, um, especially in Southern Italy. They're uh, the wines that aren't easy to get into or from a guest perspective, easy to say. Uh, Portovino has been really helpful. I don't think that that's really been a book that's been touched in New Orleans. And so to like, kind of bounce between all of these big books like Banville, uh, Winebow, um, there's a lot of really good stuff that they have available in, from a regional perspective. So when I reach out to those suppliers, they can help hook it, hook me up on that vineyard brands. Um, so that was one of the keys in getting some like back vintage things and some like maybe more allocated producers. Uh, that that's kind of what I think separates it is that I can go to the supplier level.
0: I guess this is true of any major Western region, whether it's Spain with Ribera and Rioja, Or in France with Bordeaux and Burgundy, but especially in Italy, I feel like people think in these very monolithic terms about just a couple of places and then forget about the plethora of other things out there. Like people think in Nebbiolo or Sangiovese. And it sounds like what you're talking about is coaxing guests to try some of those other varieties that might be really interesting or other regions that are out there. I mean, in terms of the list that you were able to build as you continue to build it, what are some of those regions and the ways in which you connect with consumers about those nooks and crannies of Italy?
1: Yeah, it's still not a huge list, but I'll speak to Sammy's first, which is our uh, Italian restaurant we just opened uh, five months ago in Austin or three months ago, maybe.
0: Um, Time is a construct. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was a week ago, it was a week and a half ago. It was, I mean, the amount the, last year, the fact that we've opened. A hotel
1: and four restaurants in the last calendar year is—I
0: don't know how you fucking did that during a pandemic and this, you know, labor shortage scene. I mean, that's wild, dude.
1: Yeah, it's uh, we one foot in front of the other. So, speaking from a Sammy's perspective, I think that that was a much more focused uh, pre-bought list that, like, we could understand like how to represent particular producers and we could represent more regions and um flesh out a little bit more of the producer nuance and and esoteric areas of italy um and so going into new orleans knowing that i we just built this really cool fun list in austin i was able to take a lot of the bones of what we worked with in at sammy's and work with some of those wines that like we knew that we had already had a lot of success with like um i think uh the wines of the Val d'Aost are an easy entry point for people price point wise. I think the whites of Northeastern Italy um, can be really
0: engaging. All right, Bobby Stucky, we've heard enough. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean... Enough talk of Friuli. Yeah, fair enough. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, the wines are great. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if there's a producer that you work with in Austin, but like Visantini is like a small little producer that... Doesn't get a whole lot of retail play, but I love all other wines that they make from their Pinot Bianco to their Pinot Grigio. Have you had those wines? Yeah, I visited there. Um, it's like a, a family of it's two sisters, I think,
1: two sisters and two. Oh, for real? Are, are running it, and it's a cool spot. Like, I think the wines are always great, but yeah, it's a it's a perfect. Like one of the biggest challenges we have, I'll tell you. Like we we want people to spend money for Italian white wines. It is tough to get get wines that like that we can sell on a list beyond like $150. So really? I, that that speaks to the value of like white wine um and there's really great producers that are untouched and even allocated producers like Miani sit around in in Texas inventory. So I think it's a really untapped area but yeah, that is it's a, a big challenge like unless you're like talking about the big names like Ornellaia Bianco which such a tiny amount is produced and it's such a uh iconoclastic wine it's not really like people would order it because they're in and not because it's a like the best white wine they could buy
0: and so doesn't bb make a uh a bianco mm-hmm. don't they do one that's like crazy expensive as well
1: uh i know that they do a red on that range i don't know what what white is really that expensive
0: in terms of like some of your other concepts because you oversee the wine program for a lot of different restaurants and perhaps the restaurants that Y'all are best known for like Jeffrey's, uh, Clark's and Perla's, those latter two being oyster establishments. I feel like that's an amazing spot to drink Italian white wine,
1: right? Totally. It's just, again, it gets down to uh, maybe I'm being too business guy here, but it gets down to like we could stack these lists with 100 to $150 bottles of wine. Uh, And then we get a lot less movement on some of the things that we're trying to prioritize. And so those lists are meant to be like tight. And like when people walk in there, they, they're able to order things that they like, it's not ever changing and there's a level of comfort. We're now just fleshing out the Clark's menu. We've had so much success in Aspen. It's a larger list, but Clark's Austin, like there is a need and a thirst uh, for, for doing something uh, with a bigger list. So but yeah, I, I think you're right. It's just a matter of like, are people going to drink hundred-dollar white Burgundy, or are they going to drink hundred-dollar Kerner from Alta And it's like, is it worth the hand sell? It's worth it to have those sun wines across the group and sprinkle them in there. But um, yeah, just got to think about list space and what's going to be most efficient and how people use it. And so, anytime we can work them in, it makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's rewarding and exciting when you're able to do that hand sell, but if it means not selling that burgundy that you're trying to push or some something else. Yeah. I mean, I I get where you're coming from, but when it comes to building a hotel wine list versus a restaurant wine list, does the methodology change at all? Like, do you think, Oh, this is a great restaurant wine versus, Oh, this is a great hotel wine. Like, is there a difference in mentality there or methodology in terms of the selection?
1: Uh, For the Austin proper, we were able to build out a bigger list and that was definitely top of mind. I think one of the things, one of the reasons why our restaurant group one is getting into hotels is that they don't want to create that hotel restaurant vibe. Sure, there are some wines that like are recognizable, like Jordan, for instance, like I will slip Jordan Chardonnay in on a list by the bottle because it's more likely that guests will feel comfortable and they may see a lot of names that they're not familiar with or don't have experience. Yeah. You
0: earn a sense of trust with the guest. If they see something they recognize it's something for them to kind of like latch onto and be like, oh, okay, cool. There is something here right now.
1: Totally. And then they may, if they want to have a conversation, they're like, I know I like Jordan. Is there something else? So like, yeah, I mean, Jordan Chardonnay, Faust Cabernet, I think are wines that are meant to be olive branch style wines that, fit in a particular price point where people don't even have to ask for something and they can order it. um, And it makes sense from the restaurant side. So I I think that your, your question is, yes, you do think about that for our group where we try and get further away from that um, because we don't want to be recognized as like a normal hotel restaurant.
0: I I know we had a conversation previously about the differences between Austin and New Orleans. Uh, these are two cities that you had described as being, you know, somewhat similar in the sense that New Orleans is Austin all grown up, yeah. um, which I thought was like a fascinating thing. And I'd love you to expand on it, not just for listeners, but also for me, because I still am processing how you, how you make that comparison.
1: Uh, so it was, it, I can't say that I own that comparison. There are several people, especially Liz Lambert, that uh, says that New Orleans is a grown up Austin. And like the direct comparison that I've been able to take in is like in Austin, we get a new group of people every weekend because people are coming and having a weekend trip and they've always been wanting to go to Austin or they love going to Austin and they make it a a thing, the same thing for new Orleans. So every weekend, uh, potentially every week we see a whole, whole host of new people. It is like being like working in Vegas when people are coming in constantly on those traditional, like, Thursday through Sunday trips. Uh, and it, it reads the same way um, when it comes to, like, the the dirty streets. Like, we have Dirty 6th in Austin, and we have Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And Bourbon Street feels like, like, over time, <laughs> I, I could see 6th Street just becoming, like, 6th Street in Austin is kind of divided between uh, East 6th, Dirty 6th, West 6th and it kind of molds together. Eventually, like as Austin's profile grows, I could totally see it turning into something like that. where at the end of the strip. Like you can like have a Frenchman street where it's a little bit cooler for the insiders and maybe that's East six, uh, in Austin. Um, I, I think that the idea of, uh, maybe downtown is a little bit different. Um, I don't know that Austin has the same sports culture, so I'd see that that's where they divulge.
0: Uh, Also feels like a lot more new money compared to New Orleans. New Orleans, there's a lot of history to that city. It's a lot of very old buildings, um, you know, whereas Austin to me, it's all shiny, new. There's been many, many think pieces written about big tech entering Austin and all the events associated with like South by and stuff like that. And I'm sure those are great. They probably provide a lot of business for you guys, but, but it seems like it's a far more in some ways like corporate city yeah. Um and a lot more like shiny and more precise. um if, if that makes sense.
1: Totally. But I mean, the, the thing that we were talking about is what will Austin look like in 30 years? And will that be an apt kind of fun comparison to what New Orleans is now because Right now, there's one restaurant group, ours, that dominates the city and... Potentially- in
0: Austin, right?
1: In Austin. Uh, and there's a major family in New Orleans that kind of owns most of the restaurants. Uh, the name's escaping me. Um,
0: what what restaurants do they own?
1: Uh, commanders. Uh, and it's like, oh, I, I can't think of the, the whole string of restaurants, but everyone kind of sees them as the, like the royal family of the restaurant scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I could totally see Larry and Tom being that kind of like, I don't ever see them selling and them being, um, there in Austin as stalwarts 30 years from now. And people are going into Jeffries and being like, I went here 70 years ago and that's the way people identify like commanders and galatois and, um, they, they don't like to, uh, those restaurants don't feel like they've changed. Um, I don't know. In
0: a good way. In a good way. They feel like they're the same place. It's a time capsule. You go inside and you can get the same kind of martini or Cosmo or, you know, burgundy decanting service that you would have gotten many, many moons ago. I don't know. I mean, you worked in Austin for such a long time. Did you feel like the wine culture within the city changed a whole lot from the time you started to the time that you assume this title as multi-unit wine director?
1: Totally. And it kind of like, it, it, it stinks on some level because when I came here, the wine scene from an industry perspective, there was a lot brewing. There was a lot of people that were like in and around town and, uh, we still around restaurants and even, um, all the buyers that I originally grew up with and, um, and kind of in between, like in the last two years, we saw a lot of flight of people leave town and a lot of talent and, uh, But over that time, like I came in right kind of at a perfect time because all the work had been done in a big way to kind of convert Austin from a cocktail city into like, I think that there's a ton of wine that can be sold in that city. And I think there's a need for it, but I don't think that that need always existed. And it was created with industry professionals like June and Mark and Craig Collins and Um, and then doing their part for the community and building that up. And then you had guests that like were thirsty for it. I know a lot of great restaurants that ended up failing five, 10 years ago because the market wasn't ready for it. I, I move in and all of a sudden people don't have any problem spending, uh, crazy money on Burgundy and Bordeaux. And so it definitely changed. And so the guests kind of like, kind of went one way and, and the industry, like, got hollowed out for a second. Now we're seeing this resurgence of really talented professionals, Um, but it does feel like early steps and regaining the momentum on the industry side. So,
0: Do you feel do you feel like uh, this migration of people from places like Los Angeles to cities like Austin, especially over the past year, do you think that played a role in any of this over the past year, the kind of trajectory of the city's wine culture or just food and beverage culture as a whole?
1: I think it helps competition amongst guests, like guests that normally knew that they were the only ones drinking a particular allocated product at Jeffrey's know that Now people are coming from California and they go to all the greatest restaurants on the West coast and that like they have come, like people are buying multiple producers that would normally sit on a list. So I think from that side, it's, it's amping up competitiveness, but truly, I think it was a Austin market thing where people had new money and they got more new money and they wanted to spend it. And, um, that we have places where they can do that. Drawing it back to St. Louis, where we're we both were, you were born raised there.
0: Uh, I was not born there, but I spent the large part of my formative years in St. Louis uh, in the Clayton area. Yeah, uh, my dad actually worked across the street from your old wine bar, uh, Louis.
1: Yeah, I mean just the the fact that like coming from the Midwest, like I'm here in Sonoma, and it's a bunch of sounds from around the country, and one of which is the basically runs the program at Angler and she worked for me at louis she worked with me at the four seasons and seeing like the the wine director for four seasons napa which just recently opened from st louis um obviously our mutual friend brandon kern who runs uh, aoc in houston andre who runs uh, lazy bear andre
0: ivanov uh master sommelier beverage director for uh lazy bear right mm-hmm. in san francisco Matt Doley, who just took over a partnership at a
1: really cool wine bar concept that they have uh, multiple outlets in DC. The list goes on and on, but the kind of people that come out of St. Louis are real deal people. And uh, it's just, I don't know what it is about that city. I don't know if we were all just lucky that like things converge at the right time, but there's a lot of people that ended up moving outside of that city. And Gosh, I just uh I wish one day that uh, we could get back there. At least I wish one day I could go back there and work
0: um because is, is the lesson here though is the takeaway that all these people left St. Louis that none of them stayed there? Is that the takeaway that they all like left the city this exodus or is the story that the city produced all these really great people? that's
1: a little bit of both. Like I think a lot of those people would have liked to stay in St. Louis um and Like, I think it's at this place where maybe Austin was 15 or 20 years ago, Um, but there's a bunch of old money and the city is kind of in this like crossroads of like where they're going to go, but there's a lot of positive momentum. Obviously we're getting the soccer team there and, and I I think that will bring a lot more international taste to the city. But yeah, I think that for as much wine talent is produced, there's not a ton of wine driven, like big list places, even in New Orleans, like there there's a. There's a ton of like really cool, big lists, but in a place like St. Louis, you'd expect like you could go in somewhere and see like Burgundy that's 20 or 30 years, uh, vintage variation. You only really see that in people's homes. And so that's a little sad. I I hope one day I can be a part of something that tries to bring that back up. So,
0: well, how often do you go back to St. Louis?
1: I try and go back whenever I can. My uh, dad has been, had, had some health issues. So I go, I've been back probably three or four times in the last seven or eight months. So
0: was there any place that like, you were really excited to check out while you were there? I know when Andre was in town, it was what Reed's American table. Yeah. That was his vibe. And Um, and that's gone now. Dang. Yeah.
1: So um, there's, there's a few restaurants that just popped up. But the people that are fighting the good fight, the really good, talented people are in some restaurants that still don't have the money behind them to really create big lists, things that, like, I'm not going to go in there and try things that we haven't had. There is a huge list. uh, You you, uh, remember Truffles?
0: Yeah, Truffles is super familiar. I think my parents took me there for, I think, like, my birthday when or when I graduated middle school I think they took me to truffles I think that was the vibe
1: so I never cared about when I lived in St. Louis I thought it was kind of stodgy and like old school and if you look at that list you can definitely see some things where I think like that I would love to see a a restaurant list like that where like several restaurants you can go throughout St. Louis and find those things Um, and it's crazy that it's just one restaurant called truffles. And I really couldn't tell you, point you to another list. If you want (laughs) to spend money on
0: wine, I couldn't tell you a place to go do it. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's, you need some, you need one, at least one restaurant to be doing that so that wine gets allocated to the state. I I don't know if it starts on a distributor level or a supplier level. I guess it starts on the guest level, right?
1: I think it starts on a guest level and it starts with like something like, um, um, a change in momentum, like a soccer stadium coming. Like one of the things that moved Austin was we would have these F1 events and people would come in from all around the world. And they'd have these massive budgets. Well, we're going to have people that enjoy like international soccer coming into the city. And I think that that would provide for enough like um, disposable income where people start putting some cooler things on lists and uh, you start to see a little bit more depth, but that's, that's what I'm kind of hoping for. And some of the old money to just get bored with doing the same old thing and hoarding all the wines and, and letting the restaurants
0: kind of have their day. So one day. Yeah. I imagine a lot of people, a lot of money gets spent at country clubs rather than at restaurants. That's probably the other big thing. Yeah.
1: I don't even know what other city I'd compare it to. Like even Kansas city has like cool restaurants you want to go to that have like surprisingly interesting things.
0: Uh, like that one wine bar, if I'm getting the name. Um, Maybe like an Omaha or um, a Little Rock. I Cities I haven't been to and don't have any familiarity with, but I'm trying to think of more conservative markets. Honestly, Boston doesn't have a super dynamic wine scene. There's some things going on. Yeah. Um, there's a handful of like really cool wine bars like Rebel Revel. Um, There's some cool restaurants doing interesting things, but, you know, it doesn't have the same gravitational pull as like a New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or San Francisco, or even I'd argue a Houston at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe like I, you could probably say any major city and it'd probably be a better wine restaurant scene than
0: what we have in St. Louis and in, in the country. it's a beer town though. I mean, Anheuser Busch was there for so long. Maybe that plays a role. There's just like a culture. It's like embedded in the DNA of people in St. Louis to to drink beer, whether it's Anheuser Busch or now maybe Schlafly's or what is it? Four Hands or isn't well, that the name of a brewery yeah, there? And um, Four
1: Hands and then uh, the sour beer one too. Uh, I forget the name of it. now, But yeah, I mean, I refuse to believe that that's the reason. I think. Anytime that you see a city that has more disposable income, they're they're going to pay for things. Uh, and yeah, uh, I think Anheuser Busch will always be a part of our culture, but people still want nice things if they can afford it. So I think it just takes like an economic rebirth there, and it you kind of see a lot of interesting things like um, Square going into the old post dispatch building.
0: Um, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Is that like going to be their like HQ2 or something?
1: Yeah. So they're, they're hoping to house like 500 employees there or something kind of crazy at one point, but it's right on the cusp of like really dangerous territory, but uh, in North St. Louis city, but we're doing the geospatial um, agency is being built in multiple billion dollars and, and a lot of wealth will come into town for that and the soccer stadium and and hopefully there's that momentum just keeps on building. But yeah, uh, I think that one that one X factor is like Clayton has always been disconnected from St.
0: Louis city. And um, we- Clayton for people. It's like a I, I wouldn't even call it like a suburb necessarily. I mean, it's like the the area right next to, quote unquote, downtown separated by a big park. I mean, is the closest way i would describe it right like there's downtown then there's forest park and then there's clayton right
1: well and i think even further like you'd have to go down the highway 10 to 15 minutes in order to get to clayton from downtown so there is a massive park forest park but there's also university uh saint louis university and then a whole another district called uh central west end which is um uh big hospital base there, but also a tech center. And for the first time, like we're seeing this connection of like, there could be a lot of enterprise happening from no pun intended. Um, enterprise rent a car. Oh,
0: city. That, that's a deep cut <laughs> for the real heads for the real STL hive out there.
1: I, I just hope that like, I it'll take wine professionals to go back in the city, like someone like Andre or Brandon, or hopefully myself to go back in there and to start restaurant groups and to, to do wine focused things. And I think it's possible. It just takes investment. So hopefully uh, that happens in the future.
0: Love it. I love it. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Um, Give people your top three St. Louis either dishes. Yeah. Maybe St. Louis bites or drinks.
1: Lona's little eats is my favorite restaurant. And that's like, um, Thai wraps that like she was James Beard nominated and I asked her what she thought about it when I, and it's a hole in the wall place. And she didn't know what James Beard was. Uh, number one. Um, where, where is it located? Um, it's like South. It's like North of Soulard off of uh cheese. What's that street? What's, what's the near
0: Soulard? I don't know.
1: Near, near Lafayette park.
0: Oh, okay. Lafayette yeah. Park. A botanical garden. Are you close to that? In between there. And yeah, it's in, in that
1: overall neighborhood. So Lona's, uh you gotta do lion's choice are you a lion's choice guy
0: hell yeah i get some roast beef in i love it there's one right by the home depot on hanley um that we used to go to a fuck ton in high school yeah i go there all the time whenever i go back uh and then i feel like i'm not going to mention something that i want to but uh or you could say ted drew's get some frozen custard Mm. um you could go with a uh an emo's pizza a fitz's root beer Perhaps there's a delicatessen that you enjoy.
1: I, I can't have
0: dairy, but I think
1: that an underrated pizza equivalent to Emo's is farachis. So I'd say farachis. Have you had farachis? Oh, never.
0: No, I haven't had farachis. I don't think I have anyways. Where is it?
1: Uh, there's one in Ferguson where I grew up and then mm. they just put one out on uh, in like West County somewhere.
0: Wait, so you're dairy free?
1: Yeah, I have a dairy allergy.
0: Wow. Wine and cheese is not a combination that you uh, vibe with on a regular basis. It sounds like. Wine and faux cheese. Faux cheese? How much faux cheese do you,
1: do you consume? I I feel like I'm a little bit more of a connoisseur than some other people. Like Daya is absolute trash. Sorry, Daya. You're probably not going to sponsor DIA
0: Daya, still sponsor the pod. You sponsor <laughs> the pod and we'll find a way to edit that out. If you ever want
1: to try something close to what I think cheese is, follow your heart is the brand. And like... Try the Parmesan or try like any other style. What do they make it with? Um
0: love? soy or I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah. What what's it called again? One more time. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Yeah. All right. Or follow your digestive tract. Follow your colon. <laughs> that's that's really what they should be calling that. Man, I feel like there's so many food pairing things that can involve dairy that like the The closest you get to having dairy is a really buttery Chardonnay from Sonoma, right? I mean, yeah, and I think that dairy components stick out to me more in wine than maybe they do to other people because I don't take them for granted. And so I, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know if that has any. Do you have to take a lactaid after having a glass of Rombauer? Like, what happens there? <laughs>
1: no, but I, I yeah, I, I don't even mess with it at all. Uh, I can <laughs> There's no pill or anything. It's it's an allergy, so sucks dang dog i lose i lose weight when i go to france
0: yeah i can't imagine taking that trip to burgundy without any you, you were in burgundy a couple of years ago with david smith and i don't know how you manage that whole trip without br- uh, butter well it's as am- wild
1: it's amazing like old school cooking like there's a lot of stuff that people use dairy and in, in the states like cured meats and and trains and stuff They they never use dairy because they just have really good like animal fats and that's hell yeah the-
0: yeah. Cool. Shout out animal fat. Great stuff. <laughs> Underrated product for sure. You excited? About even? Oh, dude, I'm fucking stoked. It's gonna be great. I'll talk to you soon, dude. Thank you again for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. And holler when you're in France. You. Come on through. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream every episode of By the Glass wherever you stream your audio content. That's Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. Really anywhere just go stream it stream it all Uh, tell your friends to stream it stream it twice we gotta bump up those download counts um no but for real though thank you so much and we will see you next week with another app